people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off.昨日の中松さんとこが穴組とドンパチ始めちゃったらしいんだよ。で、どうしても助けてくれって親分に泣きが入ってさ。まあ、うちとしても人出さなきゃいけなくてさ。村か、お前何人か連れて行ってくんない
I believe back in the day, I probably got a DVD to watch it. At least I think that was the first time or the first way that I saw the film. And I think they provided Hanabi uh, fireworks at the same time. So I basically watched it to, for an interview. And there is something about his style that's absolutely engaging from the get-go. I mean, from the first frame of almost all of his films, you are immediately hooked. And for me, you know, this was around the time, too, of really taking a deep dive into, like, Hong Kong action films as well. So his approach to action and violence was so unique and just kind of turned the genre on its ear that I just fell in love immediately and wanted to immediately find absolutely everything I could of his to watch. I had a feeling you might have interviewed Kitano when I was agreed to be on this. I was like, I wonder if she's spoken with him because you have talked to us so many people over the years. Part of the reason I did was because we had a great local video shop that had a lot of Asian DVDs early on before they became really mainstream. And actually, not DVDs. I should correct myself. Laser discs. That's what they mainly trafficked in. But my friend kind of opened my eyes early on to a lot of filmmakers and films before they started to become popular in the mainstream, which allowed me a really nice opportunity to kind of sneak in before they became popular and ask for interviews where they were much more eager to accommodate and where programs like Public Radio International were interested in covering them because they said, yeah, that's exactly what we want to do is highlight international filmmakers who may not be that well known here. And I actually got to interview him in person, which was really nice up in LA. And I don't know if this is true or not, but I do believe he probably speaks English or understands English to a great degree. But he said that he did not and had a translator present, which I think just allowed him an opportunity to like hear the question kind of twice and take a little more time to answer. But I have a very distinct memory of coming in the room, you know, they used to do those press days at hotels. And so, you know, you'd come into some suite. And I have this very distinct memory of coming in and he was kind of like in the corner, like facing the wall. And I felt like he was a boxer in a ring, like in the corner, just kind of like warming up and like I was going to be the next <laughs> opponent as opposed to like, oh, we'll sit down for a nice little chat. I felt like he was in there kind of like a little bruiser. And I was going like, oh, shit, what am I in for? He was a really, I mean, it was a fun interview. Um, but I, I do think he wasn't as comfortable speaking. And I don't think his translator was great because I was going through, I was trying to find the actual interview, which the internet totally let me down on this. Apparently, Public Radio International has taken down all their old stuff and I couldn't find it anywhere. But I found my old transcript read through that but uh, i don't think the translator was like great on it but uh he was a lot i i do remember distinctly though he was i was i enjoyed having the opportunity to talk to him but i do have that very vivid image of him like i felt like he was rocky balboa in the corner there just or john garfield maybe did he flash the classic smile 
I don't remember the smile. I just remember thinking I was like in a, as opposed to like, you know, you interview some people and they're very casual. Like I had a chance to interview Chalian Fat and he's very kind of friendly and charming and just, you know, absolutely lovely. And Big Takeshi, I felt much more like, ooh. Am I in over my head? Is he going to think these questions are stupid? Is he going to like storm out of the room? I don't know. But it was a good interview. I mean, I enjoyed talking to him. And Colin, how about you? Was this the first time view for you or had you seen this before? This was the first viewing for me. I'd been meaning to see it for 20 something years. I saw Kikujiro shortly after it came out and that was my first Beat Takeshi movie. And I absolutely love that. And that is still one of my favorites. Every few years, I feel like I catch up with like another of his movies. I think the second one I saw was Brother. And say it was a surprise because I knew I was going to like it, but uh, I absolutely loved it from first frame to last. Watched it several times. He has a really entrancing sort of pace and mood to his movies, and this was just pure beat Takeshi, you know, every every step of the way. Uh, excuse me. This was pure Takeshi Kitano because B. Takeshi is the funny one. Yeah, the actor in the film is B. Takeshi. The, the director behind the scenes is Takeshi Kitano. And- yeah, and for folks listening at home, if you don't think you're familiar with Takeshi Kitano or B. Kitano, if you've seen Most Extreme Elimination Challenge, uh, which is one of my most favorite things in the world, it's a redub of Takeshi's Castle, a incredible tv show from the 80s and uh, i've watched some of the original japanese ones but i gotta be honest i really like those stupid voiceovers and all the horrible dad jokes that they do on there oh it's it's awful but it's so funny i mean captain tenille and just all of these characters but i knew of sonatine boiling point and violent cop it seemed to be, and I know a scene at the sea is in there as well, but those three aforementioned movies seemed to be, it was like somebody discovered them and it was before it was very easy to get them in the U.S. So I remember seeing them in so many gray market catalogs and I just kind of earmarked them as this is something that I need to see, especially when you saw some of the images from these, especially the one from Sonatine with Takeshi Kitano with the gun against his head and this big smile on his face. And sometimes you'd see blood and other times you wouldn't. And I'm just like, what is this movie that has this striking image inside of it? And now I finally have seen it because I had never caught up with these early films until now. I was kind of missed out. I saw Brother, Dolls, and Zatoichi. Those are the three Kitano films that I've seen before. I had never seen any of these other ones. So shame on me. Did you see him first as an actor, like in Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence or Battle Royale? Well, I remembered Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, though. I don't remember where I saw that one. And definitely I saw Battle Royale. And I definitely saw that before I saw any of those movies that he directed. I don't know how successful those films are. I remember kind of liking Brother, kind of liking Dolls, but not really liking his remake of Zatoichi just because that was the beginning of Digital Blood, and I really wasn't a fan of Digital Blood. 
I don't think any of his films were ever big financial successes, either in the U.S. or in Japan. I, I think, well, actually, I, when I was reading, rereading the uh, interview I did with him, he said, oh, he had a funny line where he said that, I'm sure my producers have done a lot of bad stuff during the last decade to raise money or cheat someone to take their money to get my films made. <laughs> I love that. I went back to Brother, you know, a couple days ago because I hadn't seen it since it came out. I still love it as one of my favorites. I think he and Omar Epps have such amazing chemistry together. And it's especially funny because they don't really, in the movie, they don't speak the same language at all. And it's just so funny watching Omar Epps trying to be a con artist and explaining like how he's going to be cheating Takeshi Kitano. And then he perfect beat Takeshi, you know, smiling, you know, you know, very little movement, very still, very quiet. And then it's he always manages to cheat, you know, to win. And I, I thought they were really wonderful on screen together. And I, I think that that's what really made the movie for me. And also one of the best uses of chopsticks. I mean, I saw that one at the theater, which was actually all three of those films I mentioned, I saw theatrically, two at film festivals. But I remember seeing Brother at a main, well, it might have been an art theater, but it was at a regular theater in the United States. For San Diego, I think they eventually all came through landmark theaters, through our Ken Cinema, because uh, they used to do like little mini festivals of Asian or Hong Kong movies. And so I think that's where I ended up eventually seeing them on the big screen. And do I remember correctly that Sonatine was not a success at all and was kind of a little bit of a shameful thing. So people didn't even think that there anybody was being serious when it was like, Oh, we want to release this in the United States. It's like, no, no, you don't want to do that. I just remember that none of his films had done particularly well financially in Japan. And that was one of the reasons why it took a while for some of them to get here. Because I had asked him about, you know, his films getting released here. And he says, well, you know, I'm just not sure anybody <laughs> really wanted to pursue them. But he was popular in Europe. And he was popular on the festival circuit. Critics and film festivals really loved him. But, you know, I do think it's important for people to kind of realize what a diverse talent he was, that he was really this kind of renaissance guy. And him doing these serious, although they are comical in places and, and satirical, but for him to do these violent gangster films would have been like for Robin Williams while he was doing Mork and Mindy to do to live and die in L.A. or something. One of the images I have of B. Takeshi, because my friend said, oh, do you know him from his TV show? And he sent me a copy of one of the shows. It was B. Takeshi in this rubber whale suit, huge rubber whale suit, with like a, a mallet and coming out and making jokes and trying to merge that image with the like ultra super cool B. Takeshi in Sonatine and Hanabi and boiling point it was just so weird like there's this real dissonance going on where you're going like what sonatine was really as far as i know only his fourth feature that he directed 
and he had done, yeah, Violent Cop, Boiling Point, and a scene at the sea beforehand, Sonatine feels like it's the end of a career or something. Just the, the weight that's given to the character and the performance and just things are changing. I mean, even that image at the very beginning of the film with the blue fish and the red sky and the spear through the fish, and it's like, well, this fish used to be around a lot, but now it's not anymore, because that really feels like what his character is, is we used to be around a lot, now we're not, we've got new generation of people coming in, and you see how messy the new generation is. There's one part where it's these younger punk Yakuza coming in, and they're just being very full of themselves and they start to fight. They have fist fights with people that are like a little bit older, but not that much older. And then you get even in his, I guess it's his crew. There's like him and two other older guys. And then there's at least three younger guys and they're not even as young as the ones that I was just talking about. But then there's like a, a guy who he seems to be, I don't know if he's protecting or if he's like some sort of a mentor he seems to work at a restaurant and we see him pretty early on in the film. And I don't know if he continues to be in the film too much after that. We do get him in that scene. I'm talking about with the, with the young guys beating up each other and even stabbing each other and stuff, but I'm not sure how much longer he's in the movie just because I was having a hard time pointing out all the faces, except for like maybe like five or six guys. I was pretty sure I knew who they were. In the scene where you get introduced to the really young guys, kind of the punky kids, there's a great shot. I mean, so much of his film is about comedy. I mean, he, he like bounced around from a bunch of jobs when he was younger and he ended up at a burlesque show, a burlesque club and started studying the comedians there and decided that that was something that interested him. His filmmaking, even when it's serious stuff and even when it's violence, there's this weird humor to everything. But I remember the scene where the punky kids get introduced, but the camera pans across two seated gangsters answering a question. And the third gangster, you get like his waist because he's standing and we never get a shot of his face or his head. But it plays like a joke. It plays like, here's the straight line of seeing who they are. Punchline, you don't get to see the guy's head. It was just one of those Katano moments where it's unexpected, it's goofy, and just so kind of engaging in the weirdest sort of way. (laughs) Very glad you mentioned that. That is one of my favorite shots of this movie. I mean, it's, I feel like, game that he's always playing with the audience is expectation and then subverting that expectation. When you expect a joke, the punchline's not going to be there. When you're expecting something to be violent, it's not going to be in the way you think. So many of like, the most violent scenes of this movie, the, the gun or the knife will be like below the camera and you don't see it. At other times, you expect there to be this big outburst of violence and then there's just quiet. Or you just see like the consequences you'll just see like a body laying down i think there was one shot and i still not even sure what happened but i think there's one shot like of the guys standing outside a car and there seems to be a dead body in it like there's some guy's legs hanging out but i don't remember if there was ever any clarification of who that was lying down in the car or what happened to him or but it's just there 
it helps with these actors as well as because so many of them have very distinct features and they're very unusual looking. So he's got a great knack when it comes to casting faces and making sure that people are very distinct. Like his uh, Murakawa's right-hand man, Ken, who I think he's the one who starts adapting Hawaiian shirts when they go down to Okinawa until he tells him that he looks ridiculous. And then he starts wearing regular shirts again. And all the rest of the guys are just like, Hey, what happened to the shirts? We really like these shirts. The, the way that we deal with the minutia, the trivia, the way that everything is shot very, I would call it deadpan. It feels very Jarmush or Aki Kurosmaki. Watching this, I was so reminded of things like ghost dog, but then at the same time, I'm like, it kind of reminds me of like Leningrad Cowboys as well, where there's just very matter of fact, and it feels like they were almost, you know, because Kurzmaki, both the Kurzmaki brothers and Jarmusch definitely knew each other and hung out and made movies together and stuff. It feels like B. Takeshi could be right there with them. Absolutely. And I mean, you can also throw in Buster Keaton. Uh, I mean, I think there's very much the like silent clown stuff because there's a number of scenes i went and watched like four or five of his films again and so now i'm blurring which one is which but there's one scene where they're i I think it was boiling point where they're outside a glass door trying to shoot a gun and they can't they don't have the safety off but you can't hear anything because they're behind glass but then like these two other gangsters run by to knock them out and they open, you know, it opens the sliding doors and suddenly you hear all this commotion and gunshots going off. But there's that whole sense of absolute silence and seeing this mime kind of play out. And yeah, so Buster Keaton is is another one who really comes to mind when I'm watching his movies and that total deadpan. The other one I would mention is Jacques Tati. Especially, not not only with the deadpan, but with, you know, like the scene you just described, the way that he works within geography, within architecture. I feel like Katana was very aware of, of the settings and, and plays within that very well. Well, yeah, so many scenes play out almost silently. I mean, you've got the soundtrack in here, which gets a little repetitive at times, but other times it's like, oh, this is absolutely perfect. But yeah, those scenes on the beach, the one where the guys are almost being like sumo and kind of wrestling with each other and stuff. And I'm just like, yeah, if there is dialogue, I don't remember it. It just feels like they know what to do and they're doing it. I mean, sometimes there's a little bit of direction, like um, when they're playing it's kind of Russian roulette, but it's like Russian roulette meets Rochambeau. So they're doing rock, paper, scissors in order to figure out who's going to put the gun against their head kind of thing. Uh, other than them doing the shooting with their hands, you know, like rock, paper, scissors, you don't get a whole lot of them talking to each other. And that's very typical for a lot of this. There's a lot of stuff without dialogue or where just there's long periods between lines or the whole movie starts off with um, this unsuccessful shakedown of this guy who is running i'm guessing it's a mahjong parlor and they're like hey you gotta pay us protection money it's just like yeah fuck you and just stands up to them and i'm like oh you're gonna take that and then sure enough i think like two scenes later we see this guy get grabbed and they put him on this crane 
And just the scene where they're dunking this guy into the water, he's not overreacting. Like, he is not begging for his life like I would beg for his life when he's being dunked into this water. And when they're waiting while he's under the water, they're just having a casual conversation. There are very awkward silences in it. And there's one part where it's like, oh, I, oh, geez, it's been over three minutes. We should probably pull him back up now. And then <laughs> he's dead. They don't make a big deal about it whatsoever. Well, and that scene is so weird, too, because you get these close-ups of just the hook holding the guy and you think to yourself why am i why do i why does he keep cutting back to like just this piece of machinery that's not doing anything but it's the stillness of those shots then that you know kind of are such a contrast to the violence that it's actually depicting but that scene was so amazing because they are it's almost like oh whoops we forgot about him oh well he's dead okay well let's go back to whatever we were doing it's like no biggie violence is so casual is an understatement to describe how violence is in katana's movies his characters rarely react mike when you mentioned the scene of sort of when the the young the young thugs and the sort of the older thugs you know, start knifing each other at this meeting. You know, Keshi is just sort of sitting on the couch. You know, his back turned. He doesn't. He doesn't turn his head to look. Like everyone's just like, "Cool, there's a bunch of people knifing each other. What time is it? it must be Tuesday." You get those great. I won't call them shock cuts, but they're definitely. I was laughing with some of these cuts. Like they go down to Okinawa. It's the some of the younger kids plus some of the older guys. And the guy who picks them up, it's so reminded me of when you go to like Cancun and you get picked up at the airport and they're like, okay, we've got water for everybody. But this guy's like, we have water and we have ice cream. And you're just like, okay, this is really strange. All these gangsters. And you just keep seeing like this shot of them all in this uh like tour bus type of thing. And they're going around the parking lot and it's taking forever for them to just get out of the parking lot. And then there's a cut and you see one of the guys with an, a popsicle. And I'm just like, okay, all right. So they're enjoying their popsicles. That's good. But it was just, again, like not what I was expecting to have in this movie. And then he offers it to the person that he stabbed. And then the person says, no, my stomach hurts. You stabbed me. <laughs> And it's just the most casual conversation. Like, of course, you know, your buddy on the bus is going to be the person you stabbed. The guy who did the stabbing seems to have no problem with the guy that he stabbed. So it's after the initial shakedown of, you know, that opens the movie. It cuts Murakawa and his associate walking through the street. But the way he films it, it's, I mean, this almost reminds me of Jacques Tati, and it's it's almost kind of like a has like almost a bit of a comedic punchline to it. It's through the building, so you're it's panning, or rather, it's a lateral tracking shot, and you're watching them through the windows and doors, and you don't really hear what they're saying. You just sort of hear the environment around them. To me, it's really striking because in that opening scene, Murakawa is you know he's he's Yakuza. You know, you pay me, you know, otherwise we're going to kill you. He's, this is his turf. And you see him out on the street and he just seems trapped. 
I mean, he almost reminds me of the fish in the in the opening shot on you know on the spirits. He seems trapped by this environment. He doesn't seem free. He doesn't seem in control of it. It almost seems like he's under surveillance in a weird way. And I think throughout the movie, you often see him in these rooms with lots of windows around him. So it's a motif that he keeps coming back to. And then at the end, I think the camera actually keeps going further after his character stops, which is kind of funny in a weird way. (laughs) In and of itself could be a little bit of a metaphor for the world moving on without him. He's not in control, even the camera's not even following him anymore. Yeah, he's not in control at all through this whole movie. From that first guy telling him to fuck off to when he goes in and meets his bosses and he he's not happy with their decisions. He's just like, I'm losing guys. You know, you want us to go back down to Okinawa? We lost three men last time we went down there. He just doesn't seem very happy with anything. That's why I'm saying he reminds me that he's that fish, you know, like they used to be around a lot. This guy is, he knows He's going, he's outmoded already. And he's just, he kind of has that, that sadness, that, that Buster Keaton sadness that you guys mentioned. It's just like, yeah, he seems very put upon. Like he's got the weight of the world on his shoulders most of the time. And the only time I really see him smile is when he's shooting him, shooting at him, his own head. Well, I'm not sure I would call it sadness. I think it's a real deadpan blankness almost and you can read things into it but you know i think his character is someone who has sort of decided he wants out but understands that the life he leads is not one that you can just exit you know i can't just go retire and everything will be okay i think this runs through a lot of his films there's a real fatalism about I'm not going to escape this. Uh, I'm probably going to die at the end. And the only thing I maybe can control is how I die. You know, maybe I can control the fact that it's not going to be those gangsters that kill me. It'll be me taking my own life. A weird sort of sensibility. One of the um, things he had said when I talked to him was this sense of you have to like come to terms with how you're going to die and then you can decide how you're going to live. And I think that kind of drives his character in at least uh, not so much his later films, but I think very much in Violent Cop, Boiling Point, Sonatine and Hanabi. I think that's very much part of his makeup. And I don't think it's that sense of coming to terms with death that's like tragic, like this sense of like, oh my God, you know, they're probably going to kill me. They're going to pull me back in. It's just this kind of matter of fact. Yeah, I chose the Yakuza life or I chose the life of a violent cop and eh, probably that's how I'm going to die. Just have to live with that. I love his stuff. Like, I don't know why I connect so well to it. Like, I feel like I understand you know, there's some films I'll watch and I'm kind of like scratching my head at the end. You know, a Coen Brothers film I have to watch twice and I, I feel like I'm still not quite sure what they really were making a film about. But like Sonatine and, and his other films, I kind of I'm like, oh, I, I kind of get where you're coming from. And I kind of get this weird sense of humor and this sort of nihilistic or fatalistic perspective. And it works really well for me, I think. 
A lot of them seem like journey films, and a lot of them do actually entail you know physical journeys like this one they go to Okinawa. And there's always a return to where they began. I think you were sort of touching on this. There's this sense that his character at the beginning knows how it's going to end. So it's not really a journey of net gain. It's sort of like you physically haven't gotten anywhere. You don't run away. Take a little detour, but it's almost like this like ritual, you know, preparing oneself for death. And I was watching Kikujiro the other day. And I kept thinking, like, this feels like it has the same sensibility. Like, the little boy in that movie that's going on this journey to find his mom knows from the beginning, spoiler alert if someone hasn't seen Kikujiro, he knows that his mom has abandoned him and his grandmother's just lying. But even he has to go on this, like, journey to just discover what he already knows. They're not even about, like, learning things about themselves. I I think B. Takeshi's characters, um, they're very self-aware from the beginning. Well, in Hanabi, I know, and I think there was another one, too. you do get these like flash forward moments where he kind of sees his own death early on. And so you feel like his fate is already sealed. And, you know, maybe it's a fantasy or maybe it's a dream or maybe it's imagined. But the fact that you get those early on does feel like the end is already sealed and there's no escape. Like I said, he one point. I want to say like midway through the film, maybe like 50 some minutes into the, this film. It's not two hours. It's closer to an hour and a half. So a little bit past the midway point. He's playing this game of kind of Russian roulette with the two other gangsters, though there's no shells in the chamber. So he's okay. And he's the, I think he, he takes aim and shoots at one of the guys, but when it comes to the actual game, he's the one that keeps putting the gun against his head. And then that night, he dreams about it. And I found it very interesting that he didn't use just the same shot a second time or you know add a little bit more to it because he actually does blow his brains out in that dream. But he is shot against water, and his compatriots are shot against water. So he suddenly changes the landscape inside of that dream sequence to not be the same landscape as what was there originally when he was playing it. So I just appreciated that he went the extra mile and just made it even more dreamlike because of where the setting was, and then that that comes back right at the end and he takes his own life that way. It starts where they're doing like the William Tell thing. They put a can on their heads and the two gangster, the young guy and the middle kind of guy are starting to bond a little and they're joking. And and then he comes and you point out that there's no bullets in the gun, but the two guys don't know that. Only Beat Takeshi's character understands that. And so they are genuinely scared and he's just laughing about it and again like that whole tone you traveling to the beach the beach is kind of often an image of vacation and beauty and idyllic and they are sort of on this vacation we get this gangster film where it's like what do gangsters do when they're not killing people like they're out on the beach and you know we're getting to see this whole other thing but It's moments like that where you're taken out of that relaxation. It's like, okay, they are gangsters because look what he just did. He just played a game of Russian roulette and let them think that they could have died. 
So the violence is just always hovering over there, even when there's all this playfulness. There really is. I mean, you brought up Jacques Tati, and I think very much there's this playfulness, both in terms of like the visual style and what they're doing. I mean, they they dig holes as practical jokes to have somebody, you know, walk and fall in, which is a very visual, that's a very like Jacques Tati kind of thing, you know, like you're going to walk over this and drop into the hole. And the sumo wrestling, which is they're imitating the paper wrestling where they're under cranked as they're kind of jerking around. And so there's a lot of this visual playfulness and this feeling like they've regressed back to their childhood. But then there's always these little punctuations that go, well, but remember who they are. Thank you for mentioning the under cranking because I was like, is this, am I, is this right? Because it was, it wasn't a lot, but it was enough that I could see, especially with the breeze going on the beach, the way their clothes were moving. I was just like, that doesn't look natural. What's happening? And it took me a little while to even figure out that he was playing it in fast motion. And then there's the end of that scene where they're wrestling, but then Ken and Ryoji, I think, were the two wrestlers. They they kind of freeze. So then, you know, uh, Murakawa you know, in company start like positioning the physical bodies like paper. And then they start beating on the sand the way that when they were in the, in the house, they're like beating on the ground to get the paper to move. And, you know, it's, it's as if, you know, the, this sort of surrealism, it takes over and, you know, the fantasy becomes the reality. What was interesting for me too, is I just did this story on a play here in San Diego called Sumo, which was about, these like six elite sumo wrestlers who are at a training facility in Tokyo. And I interviewed a guy who is, you know, who did all the fight choreography for it and, and knew all about sumo. And one of the things he talked about is that the whole ritual of sumo, when they do the, like they raise a leg, they raise an arm. And the whole thing was, is that they sumo comes from a period of time when there were samurai and people carrying swords all the time. And so the whole ritual of sumo is to show I am completely unarmed. And that's why they wear just the loincloth kind of thing. But it's this whole idea of like, I'm going to show you that I'm completely unarmed and we're going to engage in this battle. And the fact that he references sumo kind of, this time for me, because of having just spoken to this guy, I started looking at it and thinking to myself, like, oh, wow, you know, these guys are kind of like the modern samurai, and they are always carrying guns, and they are usually armed. And this little moment of, like, playfulness felt kind of different knowing some of those elements about sumo. And th that sense of, like, ritual is played out in his film, because there's also a dance, they watch this kind of ritualistic dance that they then imitate and kind of eh, not quite make fun of, but that they riff on a couple of times. And so you get these rituals kind of reinterpreted and restaged repeatedly in the film. Uh, that's really interesting about, you know, what you're talking about with this idea of, you know, sumo showing a sense of honor, like I'm not like it's honor, like I am not armed, we're on the same page, we can combat on even terms when you know, this movie keeps reminding you that, you know, these he's ba Murakawa is basically set up by his own gang 
to be a downfall. And even the the William Tell game, you know, reinforces this notion that, okay, yeah, we're on the same team, but we're mimicking killing each other. You know, the traps that he sets is very funny and, you know, sort of innocent in this sort of way, but, you know, people on that team were sabotaging them. They were setting traps for each other. And you never quite know who, you know, who really is, you know, going to be your friend. It's very cutthroat. When you get the moments of when they're attacked, when they're at this bar slash restaurant, and that that plays out so interestingly, the way that they're just kind of hanging out. And then you get these three guys that come in and you're like, oh, these guys could be dangerous. But then just the way that they're talking to each other, you're like, oh, no, these are just three friends. And before you even realize that they're not a threat, you hear gunfire and just you get the one guy getting shot and everything. And then to see the way that they do their shootouts where they just stand and just shoot at each other. And there's no, like, I'm going to duck behind this or jump over the bar or anything. They're just shooting at each other. And that's it. It was one of the strangest shootouts I've ever seen. And he kind of plays that out in other films too. I mean, Everything he does has this kind of minimalist quality. Like, I'm not going to run around shooting when I can just stand here and shoot. And I'm not going to have a big buildup to the shootout and drag this out or a big resolution to the shootout. Like, everything is just pared down to just the fewest amount of things you need. And that's the same for his dialogue, too. When I interviewed him, he says, like, I hate watching these food shows where they take you to a noodle house and all they have to do is say like these are really good noodles and then show you the noodles he says no they go on and they talk about what's in it and how much salt and what flavor and says he said you know i don't want to distract from anything with dialogue if i don't need to i think the less information i give you the more intriguing things are And I think that's true, because I think every time he gives us less than we think we're going to get, then we're engaged in it so much more and engaged in it in a completely different way, because the violence is shocking, like it is in the real world. I mean, nobody preps you for the fact that you might be walking into a place where there's going to be a shootout. It just happens and it shocks you. And that's what he's so good at is lulling you into this sense of calm and quiet with these static shots and these calm moments and then boom somebody gets shot and you know as you're watching these films those calm moments start to be really tense because you've been tricked once and then you're like wait a minute everything's really calm and quiet here now i'm really worried that something bad is going to happen and then you're building up the tension And he's, you know, playing this game with you. Yeah, he's playing games. He's digging holes on the beach and bringing this man, you know, come over here quickly. And then they fall into the hole. But earlier when he's on the beach, that's a very surprising moment for me when the man and woman, I guess their husband and wife, kind of run out onto the beach. He's watching them. Is he watching them have sex or at least watching them kiss at first? I thought that was one of the Gang, like someone was trying to rape her, was my my understanding. 
She definitely did not want to have sex with that person, whoever he was, if it was her husband or a boyfriend or a, somebody she picked up. But yeah, so he's watching like this woman sort of being attacked with his deadpan. Yeah, and it's not like he's being like, oh, hey, you there, stop this. It It's more like, oh, you're watching us the whole time kind of thing. And then that's when the things get heated. And that's when there's a real moment of violence. The only reason why I thought it was her husband is because later on they're driving the car, this very distinct blue car. And she says, oh, this car belonged to my husband. So I was like, oh, okay. Was that the husband that he killed or what? So We don't know. No, they we never, don't. They don't clarify. And there's a lot of times in his films where he just doesn't bother to explain things. The other thing that really interests me about that scene um, is it almost seems a callback to the opening of Violent Cop, his first movie. Because that movie begins with sort of a group of young, you know, teenage hoods attacking you know, this homeless man. And then you see one of the teens goes home and then beat Takeshi, follows along, knocks on the door. The mother lets him in. He sort of pushes his way in, goes up and starts beating the kid up, saying, like, you need to come confess to your crime tomorrow. In the next scene at the police station, He's taken in by the chief of police who's chastising him for beating up this kid. And he's just like, well, you were there at the scene of the crime. Why didn't you do anything? And at that point, you you think like, wait, he was there when the attack was happening and he could have stepped in to prevent this and he didn't do anything? And then he says his only defense is, yeah, what could I have done? What could have cop done against four, you know, teenagers? <laughs> like, there's plenty, but this this sense that this character, like a defined, it's like the first time you meet Pete Takeshi's a cop, you realize he he just let this scene of violence happen. That's like that's a really disturbing way to introduce your character, and that's what sort of reminded me when I was watching this scene where. You know, there. I feel like other filmmakers would have used this as an opportunity for him to show a little chivalry, to you know, step forward. But instead, he's just—he would have let the violence play out. You think he's about to do something, take action, and he doesn't, and he only ends up taking action because the guy sort of threatens him, and that's when he decides, you know, I'm not going to put up with your crap. But he doesn't interrupt the moment of violence to like help save the girl. One other thing that I was kind of confused about was the bombs that they use. I mean, I think the first bomb, does it even go off or does it no. just, okay. It doesn't ever no. go off, but then we get a bomb that goes off later on. And I kept wondering, is this the same bomb from before? Did it finally just go off? Is this like Chekhov's bomb or something that we're doing? Or, what is the story with the second bomb? Because that really seems to set things off in uh, very quick succession towards the end of the movie. If, if the one that does go off is the first bomb, but just delayed, that would have been placed by people. For, yeah, people, their own men. Which I'm not sure because, it, you know, they run in and my thought is that they drop the bomb on the ground floor and it doesn't go off. Which plays like a punchline because they they run in, they come back to the car. 
you're sitting in the car with them, you're waiting, nothing happens. And it's, it's very much like a silent comedy kind of gag where, oh, well, that doesn't happen. And then the second, when the second bomb goes off, it's definitely on the second floor. So that's where I was going like, hmm, did they have enough time to like run up the stairs and leave it? Or is this a completely different one that's been set off by someone we haven't seen? But there's so much in his film that is about things not happening as planned. I mean, that's like every time they plan to do something, it doesn't happen. And then, I mean, the the classic example is the end. They go to kill the boss. They knock on a door. It's the wrong guy. They're like, oh, wrong number. Sorry. They leave. They go in the elevator. They stop at a couple floors and then suddenly the boss walks into the elevator. So it's like the things you plan to do aren't going to happen and work. And the things you don't plan to do are going to surprise you. I mean, there's going to be these these moments, these unplanned moments that will either like finish the thing you thought you were going to do before or are going to completely like throw you off course. But there's this whole sense of like, bait and switch or you know prep you for this and not pay off and yeah so i i like i do not i cannot answer your question about that second bomb i do not know i don't there's the fisherman who shows up which I, again possibly ties back to that fish image from the beginning he ends up being an assassin and i guess he works for the boss because they're in the same elevator later on and he 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 kills one of the guys on the beach ken but ken but katano and the girl uh murakawa and the girl are just sitting behind this boat and i think he doesn't know that they're there and you're expecting him to just walk around that boat and blow them both away but they just sit there and eventually he goes away and it's like, all right, I didn't didn't necessarily expect that. I was really thinking that he was going to try to take their lives. I'm not sad about it, but it's just a very interesting way to play the scene. I thought the assassins saw Murakawa. And then Murakawa, once again, it was a moment where he, he wasn't going to do anything. He wasn't going to try to save the girl. He wasn't going to try to save his own life. It was this acceptance, like, if this is death, you know, bring it on. It was a weird scene because I felt like the assassin knew there were more people on the beach because he wasn't an idiot, but I felt like he knew there were other people there, but he only killed the one. And I'm not sure why. Like, I feel like he knew they were there, but maybe the fact that they didn't, you know, actually show themselves or challenge him meant that he didn't kill them or maybe he was not assigned to kill all of them maybe it was meant to be a warning like we're gonna kill these people i don't know it's also interesting in light of the conversation that murakawa and miyuki had where she was talking you're so fast on the draw i love tough guys and he's just like yeah it's because i'm scared (laughs) that was a a real moment where like if if he really was the tough guy he would have done something but he just he just sat there yeah he talks about how it is living his life in fear all the time 
So there's so many moments in this movie. Um, not that conversation as well as the moment when um, the William Tell moment when he has the gun to his head and he's smiling. I kept thinking about that moment in Tokyo Story where I think it's Setsukohara is you know, saying, oh, life's disappointing, isn't it? And she's smiling. There's this weird like bleak bleakness, but smiling in the face of, you know, in, in the face of that. I think there's so much about incongruity in his films and kind of which also kind of plays into that comedy notion of like a non sequitur, you know, where you're you're gonna give this one thing and then something totally disconnected after it. But like in Hanabi, all the paintings, they're animals with flowers for heads or flowers for eyes. And there's this sense of things not matching and not meant to be together, yet somehow working when you present them in this kind of artistic way. And so much of his film feels like there are laugh moments when you least expect it and where you feel it's wrong. <laughs> but he he gets you there. And then Everything about his films kind of has this distancing quality in the way that everybody has this kind of flat delivery. There's very little emotion in any of the characters. So there's not this sense of, you know, what you get in a lot of films where people are trying to, like, either ingratiate themselves or, or be mere, really maudlin and trying to pull out your emotions and, like, we want you to care for this guy and we want you to... So everything's kind of keeping you going like, no, we're not going to try and make you feel sorry for him or we're not going to make you fall in love with him in a traditional sort of sense. And yet his films always hit you at the end. Like there's a real emotional punch at the end of each of his films, even though you've been watching this movie that's not trying in an overt sort of way to hook you through emotionalism and melodrama or, you know, anything like that. And I, I always love this kind of mismatched sense of so much of his film that is, like, really one of the things that charms me the most. <laughs> I think he and Urakawa and Miyumi have a strange sense of chemistry, even though they don't have a lot of dialogue together. Before the sumo wrestling is happening, there's a moment where she comes from off screen and steps next to him, and he gives her, a, he looks at her and then kind of looks back at the sumo match, and he does a double take and looks at her again, and it's just like, did you really just, are you really still here by my side with all that's going on? And, you know, they, they do start spending a lot of time together, which causes some worry for the gang, but there's a sense that he didn't expect to have a real human connection with someone and it has happened and i even love the the goofy little scene when they're running in the rain and she just decides to take her shirt off for no reason and he just says yeah, and decent exposure is fun and you just see this like grin on his face he's so happy and to your point beth when when they have to part at the end it, it is really genuinely sad like i um my my only comfort was thinking in Kikujiro, the, the Beat Takeshi character is a um, ex-Yakuza. And it makes me think, oh, is, you know, in that movie, you know, he, he, has, he has a wife. I'm like, is that the life that this Murakawa could have had if he was able to successfully escape? 
could he have been the weird kind of grumpy old guy that still has the back tattoo wearing nice shirts and his wife is just like stop acting like a gangster you know you're you're out of that life so i i like i like to think that that's you know that that's the that's the alternate timeline where things work out for them well you mentioned his surprise at seeing her come back and i mean i think that's part of what adds the emotional punch at the end because he gets so close to her, like so close to coming back to her. And he stops the car and he sits there for a moment. And even though he's got this complete blank stare, which is probably one of the reasons why you can read almost anything into him. You know, he's like the Garbo, you know, they used to say like Greta Garbo didn't think about anything. You could just read whatever you wanted into her beautiful face. But be Kuleshov. Yeah. So he's sitting there. And you really get this, I mean, I got this sense that for a moment he was thinking, okay, what if I don't kill myself? What if I try to go live at the speech house with this woman who seems to like me? I can't figure out why. Could we have a life? How long could we have a life? Could I maybe choose to kill myself two weeks from now and maybe just have some fun? And you see him, like you see this moment of, Maybe I could have a happy life. And then he decides, no, like, no, I I think that's part of the fatalist thing where it's like, I rather control how this is going to end and know for a fact I can end it right here, even though there's this possibility out there that something good could happen to me, but I'm not going to take it. I love that idea, Colin, of the the road less traveled you know the, the what could have been i do appreciate that i need a little hope these movies are some of these and so bleakly <laughs> there yeah violent cop is pretty pretty grim i love that i think if i watch that in a few years maybe i'll feel i'd maybe i want i don't know i that ending was like a little too much for me all those movies, though, gut punches, like even like a scene at the sea, if, if you two minutes before the end of the movie, you'd be like, oh, this is this is a nice, you know, drama of, you know, this young couple and, the, you know, the guy learns how to surf and they overcome adversity. And just like out of nowhere, like beat Takeshi's like, no, 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 I just have to ruin both of their fucking lives. That I know that there is the humor as well as some of the bleakness, I think maybe would take the sting out of it because I didn't have a bad time watching Sonatine at all. I had a very good time. Some of the framing in here is wonderful. Some of the stuff, especially like in the elevator with those three shots of him and his two guys, and then we'll do the individual close-ups, and then another set of three shots, and when the door opens and all that light comes in. I mean, it just is very hypnotic, and he's is something going to happen? Is something not going to happen? What's going to happen? Is there going to be violence? When's it going to break out? How bad is it going to be? Or will it just be nothing? Will it end in a joke? You don't know. So it just was keeping me guessing and keeping me entertained the entire time. Well, and then there's the final shootout where there's, you know, the machine gun fire up on the second floor that you see mostly from windows. I mean, there's, a, I think there's a couple of quick cuts back into the building but this idea of we're going to play this out from the street, you know, we see him go in and we know something really bad is happening, but we're going to just keep you down here. And it's beautiful, too. 
it's like a beautiful shot. You see the light, you know, flash from the window, uh, and the color is beautiful, and and he does that a lot. I mean, even that shot of him like blowing his brains out. I mean, there's a certain beauty to the violence that he shows. That again is that collision of two incongruous things that shouldn't go together. Well, he makes some very interesting choices when he's shooting this stuff. Like, there's so many times where you're on that beach and the person or people that you're seeing are below the horizon. Like, I would normally think that you'd be at the horizon, but instead, you know, the water is higher than their heads are, you know, the way that he's shooting this. And I'm like, that's really cool. Or even when he blows up uh, his boss's car towards the end and you've got that black smoke going out and you've got again that very high horizon line and the two figures walking towards you or the one of the first times that we see the fisherman and he's walking down the beach and again you've got that great horizon he comes across that big pile of what i can only guess for like paper flowers that he throws up into the air that are just sitting on the beach and he throws those up and then you get that wonderful shot of those and then we do that dissolve to the red frisbee Wow, this is really pretty cool, Mr. Takeshi. When you mentioned the, the the assassin fisherman guy again, is he has this way of setting something up so far in advance? Because you see this guy and you the first time you see him, you have no clue what connection he has to the story at all. And it's much later down the road that we find out who he is and he does the same thing in boy i think it was boiling point maybe it was hanabi now i'm forgetting them but you know where you have like this car crash out of nowhere with two characters we've never seen before and you have no idea what the meaning is and you have to wait all the way till the end to kind of get their connection and in sonatine you know we talked about the holes he digs that people fall in and there's a payoff way at the end with the girl. Like, you've forgotten, you've forgotten that joke already. And then suddenly, at kind of a dark moment, she walks into the hole and suddenly you're like, ha! Like, I remember that from earlier. It's a, a level of confidence to set something up that far in advance and know you're not going to pay it off till way later for the audience. That's really, I find impressive. When she falls through the, the hole, like I think that's right when they're like working on, you know, setting up the final gunfight and she falls through and there's almost, it's kind of warm. Like it's almost like this was something that he left behind. You know, it's like a memento or something. It's, it's you wouldn't think falling in a hole would would remind you warmly of someone but those shots of them when she's firing the machine gun and then after she's done there's like shot of him shot of her shot of him and the way that she's holding the machine gun and stuff it's just like this almost looks like postcoital the way that they're looking at each other like she got her gun off well, and it's surprising, like, how easily she takes to it, too. She goes, like, oh, can I try it? And it's like, she knows how to shoot it. She doesn't even, like, get thrown back by the recoil or anything. She's just like... Pfft. Was that her, like, unspoken way of saying, like, I'm down for this life if you want me along? Kind of feels like it. And the look on his face almost feels like, 
oh, this is my girl. There's also something I've always found that, especially in Asian films, the the tone of the violence and is very specific to each country, and it's very different in each country. And to me, so much of violence in Japanese films is about rebelling against repression. For her, it's like, I've been this Japanese doll or whatever you want to see me as, you know, quiet and uh, a wife to this abusive husband, possibly, whatever. I want to take that machine gun and fire it off and, and just cut loose for even if it's just 10 seconds, because everything else is telling me I have to be this other thing. And so much of Japanese action and violence feels like it's rebellion. You know, Korean films, it feels like it's always about sadness and like betrayal and, you know, the fact that this is a country that's been divided with families living on either side of a border. Like it, it, it the violence in those films always feels like it's so sad that these, you know, people can't understand each other or that they've, you know, betrayed each other and don't realize it. And Hong Kong films, you know, it really felt like before the changeover, it was this sense of chaos. Like we just don't know what's coming and it's chaos. So like part of me felt when I saw her shoot that it was just like, I'm just going to rebel against whatever stereotyped image you have of me as this docile, polite Japanese woman. I'm very glad that this was requested. I'm glad to have finally delved into these earlier uh, B. Takeshi films rather than the three that I was familiar with. I really had a good time watching this one. And yeah, to your point, I think I might go back even more and see these. I know, Cullen, you were having trouble finding getting any. Is that comedy or is that serious like these i mean somewhat serious that's a comedy about a guy that wants to have sex in a car his name beat takeshi comes from the idea it was him and this other guy i think they were the two beats and they did like comedy routines and i think that film is kind of more in that vein like that kind of comic vein as opposed to what a lot of his other films were like it is always weird when people go from being known primarily as being comedians. So you mentioned that whole thing of like Robin Williams in uh, making a gangster film or something. And it's like Robin Williams, when he showed up in the world, according to GURP was interesting. And just the way that comedians have to navigate these waters, you know, you get somebody like, you know, Will Ferrell, where I think maybe he's made one, serious movie maybe too i don't know how people come down on stranger than fiction but then you get jim carrey who just after a while he just seemed desperate i have to win an oscar you have to take me seriously and i was like calm down dude like i liked the majestic but not everybody did and i understand why and i'm not a fan of a lot of the serious work that he does but you know then he, he sometimes he's great but I mean, also, then you have to deal with, uh, you know, are we going to take comedians seriously if they always use their first name? Should it be James Carey now? Should he have made that change? I'm just kidding around. I was say, were we going to talk about the post credit scene at all? There's a post credit scene. Oh, I, is yeah. that when? Oh, okay. Well, is that when uh, Samuel L. Jackson comes in and asks him if he wants to join the Avengers Initiative? 
No, but it does go back to the beach, and it like goes back over a lot. Like you see the boat where they had been hiding from the assassin. Oh, uh, son of a gun! I didn't even know that existed. You have to wait, like really wait till the bitter end. I mean, because I did mention that music. The music is interesting in this, and there's one song that they play at least twice in its entirety. And then the credits started and the same song started again. I was like, okay, I'm out of here. Um, so I didn't know to stick around. Well, and they actually went back, I think like a year or more later after they shot to get that footage. I think that was one of the, the things I remember about it. And you see, like you see the assassin fisherman guy, his gear, like laying in the dirt and the boat. And then all the sunflowers. Sunflowers come in in uh, Hanabi also. Yeah. Well, and I'm, I'm curious. I'm trying to count how many sunflowers there are if they represent all the gangsters that were killed on that beach. I'm seeing one, two, three, four, five, six at least. I thought it was a really interesting way to end the movie because it does sort of bring it back to the natural sense of beauty, but... It also sort of emphasized, to me, it sort of suggests this sense of futility, like there was this, you know, all this drama, this shootout, all these killings, none of it mattered. Like, they didn't leave a mark. I thought that was just like the ultimate, like, yeah, this was pointless life. There is a grim sort of sense of futility to all his films. And I mean, maybe that's the sense of, you know, his characters feeling trapped, that doesn't matter what I do. I was very happy to watch Kids Return because that was one of the few movies that ended with a note of like rebirth and positivity at the end. Like one of the characters <laughs> says, spoiler, spoiler alert, it's two high school dropouts that are just buffoons. One of them tries to become a boxer. The other one tries to join the Yakuza. Um, it can spoiler alert, Mike, you can put in your, you know, earplugs if you want, but... <laughs> Things don't go so well, but they do survive, and it ends back right where they began, where they're riding their bike in the high school parking lot while everyone's in school next to them, and one of them says, like, yeah, it feels like our life is over, and then the other one says, "Just it's just beginning. And it's just like, how many characters in Beat Takeshi's movies get to have this sense that, like, oh, yes, we're just beginning now? <laughs> so it was, I was very happy to see there's occasionally glimmer of hope in one of his movies. If he had let that play for another minute, it would have been different. Oh, yeah, they would have hit a pothole, <laughs> broken their necks. I am very curious to see Takeshi's, the one where it's, I guess it's his comic form meets his serious form. It's great. Yeah. It's wild. That sounds really cool. I like how self-aware he is, you know, that he knows, he probably knows that people were very taken aback when he came out with that first movie and it's what this comedian's making a super serious you know bloodbath but he seems to have very a very good sense of himself i would think he's done so much i mean he does comedy he's written novels he's written poetry he's a painter i mean in hanabi all those paintings are his i think they even used his paintings in Battle Royale also, oh, I think. Oh, that's cool. All those, the, especially that one at the end that he's looking at. I think so. Wow. I think so. But, I mean, another thing about him is he had a near-fatal motorcycle accident, uh, and he was 
if you watch Hanabi, there's a cop who gets shot and ends up paralyzed, partially paralyzed, and has to live in a wheelchair and has nothing to do and starts taking up painting. And that's part of what Takeshi Kitano had to do is he had like partial facial paralysis. I think he cracked his skull. I think the doctors thought he was going to die. Um, and part of his rehabilitation was he started painting and those paintings in Hanabi are his and he didn't paint them specifically for the film. He actually, those were like the paintings he started to do while he was going through this recovery period. And then I think he painted some additional ones for the film, but you know, there's this sense of him putting some of that real life into that particular film. And, and those paintings are remarkable. Yeah. I don't know if you remember them, but you know, there's, and he talked about like, I thought I could be this new Vincent van Gogh. And, he took a lot of sunflowers and in that uh, one, he has like a line with a sunflower head. And I think there's one of an owl with sunflower eyes. Yeah. I mean, he took a painting. So like, he just keeps sort of reinventing himself with each kind of little career, you know, move that he makes. And, you know, he jumped into film and, and I mean, he came to directing by accident, too, because he was acting in some films and he was cast in Violent Cop. And the director, I forgot what the reason was, but the director had to pull out. Fukusaku. And yeah, oh, and my. they just said like, oh, you go ahead and direct. And so he took on and I think I've, I've read a couple of reviews where they call him kind of an idiot savant director. Like they feel like he didn't know anything about what he was doing, but somehow... He instinctually knew what to do. But um, yeah, so I mean, he kind of fell into that by accident. I did look up that painting at the end of uh, Battle Royale is his. Okay, yeah. Which is just an an amazing painting. And I forgot about the little kids' heads that are like kind of shooting off on the right-hand side. Kind of neat. Seems like somebody in jail would paint a pic painting like that. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show right after these brief messages. Walking the edge in a violent city. Dad! Run, Dad, run! A family torn apart. A woman needs to settle the score. If he was pushing drugs to young kids, maybe he deserved it. But Danny was my baby my son he was an easygoing man a nice guy with unfulfilled dreams who's been pushed too far you'll pick up and deliver otherwise keep your friggin mouth shut is that clear my friends don't talk to me that way i think i'm tired of getting pushed around a man and a woman two strangers brought together by chance held together by fate they were one step ahead of sudden death This is big time bad business, man. I mean, somebody got a goddamn it fry, and you were right in the middle. This is car, Booster. Get in my fucking car! How do you get goddamn a piece of shit like this? We're gonna find that lady and cut her up into tiny little pieces. I'll never have another 
chance like that. Jesus, they were trying to kill me. You had to get in the way, you complete goddamn jerk off cabbie. Where is he? I don't know, ma'am. The bastard's got Tony. God damn you, lady. God damn you for being alive. I'll go with you. Go to hell. Huh? I'm gonna oh. cut your whole fucking head off. Cut your whole fucking head You're an asshole. Walking the Edge, the motion picture that takes you to the depths of human emotion. Up here, Brewster. Dirty son of a bitch! I gave you the best shot I could, God damn it! If you'd have been out on the street, you'd have been dead by now! I was going crazy. I was crazy thinking about you here. all day long. You could have called I, I was doing. Walking the Edge, starring Robert Forrester and Nancy Kwan. Coming soon to a theater near you. That's right. We'll be back next week with another listener request, Walking the Edge. Until then, I want to thank my co-hosts, Colin and Beth. So, Beth, what is the latest with you? Oh, well, we are starting to plan our next year's year-long film series with Film Geeks, and we are going to be celebrating Godzilla's 70th birthday next year by showing all 14 Showa-era films. So, on the screen, on the big screen... Uh, I am actually investing in a set of cookie cutters, so we will have cookies for each of the monsters each month. So, um, and then uh, we have uh, a friend of mine, uh, Remy Tadaishi, is a professor who teaches Godzilla. And so he's going to be introducing the films because he is not only an academic who has a lot of deep knowledge about Japanese science fiction, but he is an absolute geeky fan of Godzilla who grew up with all the toys and all the movies. So I'm really looking forward to uh, a year of Godzilla. That sounds amazing. Wow. I'm very jealous. Uh, I'm so looking forward to this. <laughs> and Cullen, what's going on in your world, sir? Just last month, Starkhouse released two Harry Whittington novels, A Woman Possessed in Prime Sucker. And I um, was lucky enough to be able to write the introduction to that, which was a real treat of long been a fan of harry whittington's novels and I, I hadn't had the opportunity to write about them before so this was a real pleasure and if you have y'all read whittington before i have not sadly he's great he started paperback guy started in the early 50s i think he might have been a post postman for a while at the beginning of his career to pay the bills and then he wrote in well over a hundred novels, just one of those guys that was super prolific. A lot of his, his crime stuff from the fifties and early sixties is kind of great bleak pared down. I, you know, Mike, I think you would love him knowing your taste. So that was fun. I have a, I have a couple albums kind of out, kind of coming out this fall. Modern silent cinema is going to be a solo piano album. And then should have a hardcore album out from my band Demoted called Shit for Brains, which we recorded last fall, last spring. We we call ourselves the laziest working band in show business. So it's finally getting released this fall. Thank you again, folks, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows that I work on. They're all available at weirdingwaymedia.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth 
take over the world. Yeah.